skills that you're acquiring in schools, the, 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 the greatness that you're going to be demonstrating, just keep in mind the responsibility you have, not just to go higher in society yourself, which is fine. Create wealth for yourself, that's fine. But unless you share it, you're not going to change the world. So you've got to share it through action. Adopt a school, adopt a community, do something that gets you involved. Don't just move out to the suburbs and have nice big houses and raise your own families without reaching back. The school I adopted in Washington, I married up with my Episcopal church in McLean, Virginia, a very upscale neighborhood not far from here. We're Episcopalians. We don't even talk to each other. <laughs> I got those black kids and those Hispanic kids come out now to McLean all the time. And I have watched 10 years' worth of kids grow up knowing each other and understanding each other. The first pool party I had, the black kids, they just wanted to play basketball out by the carport. White kids all jumped in the pool. The sisters said, I ain't going in there. My hair is going to get all wet. I ain't going in the pool. <laughs> now they have grown together. It isn't brain surgery. It's just human interaction. So just remember the responsibilities you have to create wealth, be successful, get your big houses. That's nothing. Nothing wrong with that. I have one. But don't ever forget to reach down, back, and across to make sure that you are touching others with your time, your talent, and your treasure, and not just here in the United States, but throughout the world. And if you do that, piece at a time, a kid at a time, a community at a time, you will change the world. Thank you very much. Are you take some questions? I go to NYU. I'm, a, I'm in the School of Public Administration. I was working in southern Sudan building schools. Um, but I want to play devil's advocate. But if you, if you just heard from what I did, I was building schools in southern Sudan. I don't 100% agree with everything I'm about to say. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. Because I did meet another man in Mexico. Um, and he's from Oaxaca. And his name is Gustavo Esteva. And he was very uh, adamant that jobs break apart communities. And that, um, that his community, where he's from in Mexico, factories have come in. Other communities have come in, and it's taken people to the factories, and the community has been, people have to travel, and the families are broken apart. Um, so he said the best thing that we could do as students is not to go to his country and help create jobs, but to go to our country and change the laws that has caused people in his community to have to go out and search for jobs, such as agriculture policy and um, uh, NAFTA because a lot of people, they're no longer able to grow corn and support themselves on their farms. So that was, so I'm just throwing out there the other type of wealth creation, the wealth creation within the community. If uh, wealth creation wasn't important, and if everything was fine in those communities, if only NAFTA hadn't come along and undercut some of the industries that are down there, everything would be wonderful. Really? Then why are they, uh, why are Mexicans and Central Americans coming to the United States by the millions? Why do we have 11 million undocumented people? They came here because they could not make a living where they were in their communities. They didn't want to come to the United States. Some may have, but most of them would have been just as happy to stay in Mexico if we could find jobs. And when I was working on immigration policy with President Bush and with President Fox, uh, and with uh, Foreign Secretary Jorge Castaneda, our major goal in 2001, before 9-11 screwed everything up, was we have got to regularize this flow of people back and forth who are coming to the United States for jobs, but ultimately we have to do everything we can 
to help the Mexican economy and the Central American economies so they can create, guess what, jobs in communities or maybe you have to travel to get to a job, maybe you have to change your community in order to keep people in their homes where they want to be. And so I still think that jobs are the answer. NAFTA has been disruptive in many ways. It's been disruptive in that small farming communities in Mexico can't compete with agribusiness in the United States. They just can't. Uh, so what is the answer to uh, make agriculture less efficient and food more expensive? Or is the answer to educate people not only to be better farmers, but to think of other things to do with this manpower? China, with the 800 million people I touched on, 600 million of them are peasant farmers. If they stay on those farms, they will never have a better life. Never. So what's China doing? It's building trains that go 217 miles an hour. Why? Because they need to get into the interior and build factories and industrialize the interior of China so that they can start to create jobs that will get these people off the farms. We are going through a massive uh, economic disruption now and in the last 20 years as World Trade Organization policies, as NAFTA comes along and makes it a very disruptive situation and you have to adjust to this and not try to hang on to the past. The complaints that you would find from this gentleman, I can go get from any union leader here in the United States. Look what Mexico or look what China or look what some other country has done to uh, our jobs in Michigan or somewhere else. But if you go to South Carolina and you say to them, gee, don't you want to go back to the old days of uh, cotton textile industry? I say, we got a BMW plant here, man. Those jobs are paying $30 an hour. We don't want to sew two pieces of cloth together. Well, how about something else? No, no, we got a Michelin tire plant here. So they've adjusted. In the deep south, you go to the Raleigh-Durham Triangle, they're not trying to figure out how to make more efficient t-shirts. They're trying to get into the information age and of the technology age that we live in. So NAFTA does cause the kinds of disruptions she's talked about. But to think that you can roll that back, I think, is not the right answer. And to think that there is a solution in not educating kids for a world that is becoming increasingly demanding of education, I also think is the wrong approach. When you talk about Google and you talk about all the things we're doing, and my grandchildren make me crazy with all this stuff. My 15-year-old grandson, you, know, you got it, Poppy, you got to be on Facebook. I don't want to be on Facebook. <laughs> Poppy, you got to be on Facebook. Well, you're already on Facebook. Somebody put you on. <laughs> what? <laughs> you can't put me on Facebook. I'm going to sue them. Uh, get the lawyers. And so you talk to my lawyers and my grandson, to, Poppy, you know, uh, you already got 20,000 fans. Oh, well. <laughs> Well, you know, well, why don't you answer my emails anymore, Brian? You don't answer phone calls, you don't answer emails. Poppy, we don't email, we don't call. What do you do? We text. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we tweet. What's a tweet? A tweet comes from Twitter. Well, why don't they call it a twit? I don't know, Poppy, just get with it. If, and if you, if, you, if you think this is going to go backwards to some nice little pleasant pastoral scene of people sitting around a, a community enjoying the fire and saying, this is great, not going to happen. And Mexican young people and Central American young people and Chinese young people and Iranian young people and Eastern European young people want to move up. And they know that to move up, 
means changing. It means moving. We are a society in the United States where people will go anywhere for a job if it's necessary. And most of the immigrants who have come here uh, move far away from the communities that used to give them such love and sustenance because they didn't give them the means to live there anymore. Uh, and that has been the great draw of, uh, of the American nation. And so uh, the point you're making is a right one. It has been very disruptive to move into this new generation of technology and uh, NAFTA and World Trading Organization. But it's a disruption that is not going to be reversed. And it is not going to be solved by saying we don't want to educate our kids because then they'll want to go somewhere to get a job. Hi, I'm Leah Stern. I'm a student at the Harvard Kennedy School. And it strikes me that one of the things that has enabled you to be the leader that you are is the multidisciplinarity and the interdisciplinarity of the work that you've done. And of course, that's also one of the great strengths of these fellowships is that they allow us to be more interdisciplinary. interdisciplinary. Um, but within our academic programs, the tendency is very much towards specialization. Mm -hmm. And I think that that does us and does the people we're trying to serve a disservice. And so I'm curious for your thoughts about how we encourage interdisciplinarity and how we enable people to work across fields even when they're in a narrow academic setting. Yeah, increasingly there's this the specialization that's taking place within our society. And I bet everybody in this, well, I won't say that, but most of you in this room are tracked in some very, very specialized way. Um, I think you have to do everything you can to, to break out of that by taking other courses or seeing if you can find the time to develop those, those other uh, attributes of being a balanced person. Um, I, I kid about my college education, my, and my high school education wasn't a lot, I wasn't a lot better in high school. Uh, but it's amazing. I reflect back now to when I was in school 50, 60 years ago, and I can still remember being exposed to art. Uh, I can't, I just, re I just remember lantern slides. You don't know what a lantern slide is, but you know, slides, he knows what a lantern slide is. Lantern slides of these great paintings, or sitting in class, bored to death, but listening to Ravel's Bolero on a 78 RPM record and having a teacher tell me about it. And I don't know that if we ever took a test on any of that stuff, but it still lingers with me these many years later. And I think even though I became a soldier and a bit of a geologist, these experiences I had in high school and college have stayed with me and lingered with me. And I became quite interdisciplinary and that eh, works uh, <laughs> over the course of my career because the Army insisted that uh, very few professions will do what the Army did for me. In my 35 years of service, they sent me to six years of postgraduate school. Now, what other profession out of 35 years is going to send you to postgraduate school for six years? Two of them were George Washington University. They told me to go get a Master of Business Administration in this thing called computers. We don't know what they are, but go learn about them. Uh, from 69 to 71. Uh, I went to two or three war colleges uh, and a variety of other courses that totaled, totaled six years of, of education. And it wasn't all learning how to fight. In many ways, it was expanding my horizons so that I saw things other than just being a good infantry officer. And so I find that this specialization has the dangers that you describe. 
Uh, but if you're going to be a specialist, you've got to go through that track of specialization. But I think it's incumbent upon you, uh, each of you, to try to reach out and uh, get courses in liberal arts, get courses in art and education. One of, the, one of the real problems we're having in our school systems now, these are the things we're cutting out. You know, we're teaching our kids pass the test, pass the test, math, math, English, science, and we're cutting out things. There's an article last week about their, their, the cutting out of recess has affected boys who are all pent up, you know, and they, they act out in, in class because they don't have a chance to, to get rid of that energy uh, in recess. That's short-sighted. We've got to get back to what we know is good for a kid. And we've got to get back to expanding the horizons of all of our students so that you do become more multidisciplined and interdisciplinary. Yes, sir. Hi, Secretary Powell. It's a, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Um, my name is Alex Iftemi. I'm a Yale law student. Um, and my question relates to, to public diplomacy. I'm myself an immigrant. I came from Romania with my family. And one of the memories that I have is of my family listening to Radio Free Europe, mm -hmm. which were shortwave radio broadcasts mm -hmm. funded by the United States that went into the Soviet bloc. And those did a tremendous amount to create the image of the United States as a place of opportunity for jobs and things like that. Mm -hmm. And my question to you is, it seems like after the end of the Cold War, a lot of that ended. And, and that's unfortunate. And what role do you think public diplomacy should play in the 21st century, whether it be through the internet and media or, or other mechanisms? I, th I think you're, you're absolutely right. After the Cold War ended, and we didn't really have uh, a target to address these efforts against uh, Voice of America, RFE, Radio Free Europe, and others, we sort of dropped the ball on it. And I think one of the big mistakes we made was to get rid of the United States Information Agency uh, back in the early, in the mid-90s, early 90s, before, before I came into office. I, I just, it, it's too hard to put it back together, but it was a disaster. Uh, I don't think we are yet on top of this problem of how to use the internet, how to use the information revolution to convey messages. I took a shot at it while I was secretary, and it was not terribly successful because you have to be so sensitive now to the culture that you're addressing something to. In the old days, Soviet Union is bad, 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 evil, evil, evil empire. Doesn't this really work? How do you address the Muslim population? How do you address the Asian population? I think it takes a far more sophisticated approach. Uh, Secretary Clinton, who uh, is, is pretty good at this, and she's got some great people working for her, and she's putting in place these programs that are going to try to make us more sensitive to the different audiences that we have out there. And uh, the military has perhaps the largest information program, but I'm, uh, that's still the military, and I think we have to be a little careful with their information operations. But I think you're absolutely right that uh, we did lose the bubble, as we say in the military, after the Cold War, and now we have to create in new ways an information, a public information, public diplomacy approach that understands the internet, the information revolution, and is more sensitive to the various audiences. It was easy. The old days was were much old days were much easier for guys like me. Bad guys, wall. They're on that side. We're on this side. Life is good. Um, it was understandable. Now, we knew who the enemy was, but we don't know what's the enemy now. Is it ignorance? Is it poverty? Yeah. Is it radicalism in various places? Yes. That's a lot harder target to go after than to just stand up and say it's an evil empire. 
Uh, and so I, I hope this is something that you will be interested in and uh, part of your broadening experience, other than being a Yale lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, mind you. My son's a lawyer, so let me fair disclo full disclosure here.